Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, August 12th. We begin with a look at the challenges ahead battling COVID-19 as we move into winter. We speak with an epidemiologist on the different factors we should be considering right now. Vaccine trials are underway. Masks are mandatory. With the ever-changing world of the coronavirus pandemic, we thought it would be a good time to catch up with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary. We get Dr. Janney's thoughts on the newly announced Russian COVID-19 vaccine. And as always, he takes the time to answer many of your questions. A steady stream of remote meetings or online classes can become exhausting as the pandemic wears on. We look at the issue of digital overload. And finally, we speak with a professor of food distribution and policy about what he calls the dark side of tipping. We hear his thoughts on why the practice of tipping is discriminatory and how he feels it needs to be changed. Construction is just starting in the southwest, westbound 17th Avenue at 37th Street. The right lane will be closed until 4 o'clock. There is some construction southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail. The left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. That is a repeating daily closure, 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day into Friday. And over on McLeod Trail, just north of Heritage Drive, some ongoing bridge work. There are lanes closed in both directions. This project is ongoing until October. There are minor delays in the area at the moment. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SON Mobile Stations. Visit PCOptimum.ca for details. For the 770-CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Phil Jansen. on the morning news. Believe it or not, winter is right around the corner. Experts are warning that as temperatures fall, more people gathering indoors could fuel the spread of the coronavirus. To discuss this further, we're joined by Laura Rosella, an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health. Good morning to you, Laura. Good morning. Well, as with many aspects when it comes to this pandemic, uh, many firsts, and uh, here in Canada, one of those firsts will be our first winter, uh, you know, uh, battling coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, if you will. Uh, it, it could uh, represent some challenges compared to what we've been experiencing so far. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We know that uh, respiratory viruses in general increase over the winter months, and so that's likely to play a factor. And, and the big thing we know from COVID outbreaks around the world is that transmission is greatly increased when you're indoors. And so as the weather gets cold, there's a tendency to move in for obvious reasons. And uh, there's a worry that uh, it, transmission risk will increase. Okay, so what can we do? It's, it's August 12th, uh, winter's still a few months away. What can we do now to prepare for, uh, for increased challenges that the weather will bring? Yeah, so, I mean, the the, the idea is really to start thinking about it now because it's not necessarily what we can do. We kind of know what we need to do. Increase ventilation, where possible, move activities outside, move meetings outside, social gatherings, etc. And if we just wait until winter and say, okay, well, hopefully we'll figure out a way then to do it, it's going to be too late. I think that's what we're seeing across this whole pandemic. We kind of know what we need to do with some debate, but the logistics can get complicated. So let's start thinking about now, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to move outside? How do people need to dress differently? What amenities could we put to improve the experience outside? If we have to leave windows open to increase ventilation, which is a really, you know, 
simple key way to reduce transmission. What does that mean when the temperature is, you know, minus 20 outside? So thinking through some of the logistics of increasing opening windows, increasing ventilation, spending more time outside, given that it's winter and we can't just do what we do in the normal winter, which is crank up the heat, close the doors and stay inside. And I guess not just, you know, in our own houses, but businesses. I'm thinking, for example, restaurants, which have had that opportunity. I know in the city of Calgary, we've expanded outdoor patios so they can, you know, have more seating, even though the seating indoors is limited with social distancing. Those patios will go the way of the dinosaur, and they're going to have to rethink what they're doing. Absolutely. So, and, and businesses have been doing such a great job trying to adapt to make things safer. So given that the temperatures are what they are and sitting outside in the patio is not realistic, what do we need to think of? Is it bigger venues? Do they, you know, I've heard of businesses kind of renting space so that they can distance people out uh, more. Is it increasing ventilation, knowing that people are going to be inside? So those are the things that the adaptations that they might want to consider, given that people are spending more time inside. And can we start making some of those changes now? So we're not caught and put in a situation where we have to choose and that's going to increase risk. What is your thought on this? And I might be putting you on the spot. Is is it better that we've had a lead up uh, to winter? We've had that chance to be outdoors and, and kind of get adjusted to the new normal? Or would it have been better if uh, we were witness to the coronavirus crisis in the middle of winter to begin with? I think being outside and leading up the way we have has been much better, mostly because um, I think, you know, people not being able to see others has been really challenging, especially loved ones. And at least there's been an option to, you know, visit grandparents on the porch and, and things like that. And if we had just shocked into winter, I think both the impact of the disease would have been much more uh, detrimental. And, you know, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to make those connections that we need to make uh, with our families. And so I think this has been better. I think that the question now is, great work good good job everyone for thinking for safe ways to do this now let's do it when it's winter environment and let's start thinking about it now planning doing whatever we can to make that an easier choice i'm worried that in the in the winter as things get cold people are going to get stuck with hard decisions about avoiding social situations or seeing family because they can't do it outside and we don't want to we want to help make that decision easier by making sure it's as safe as possible and I'm guessing, thinking it through here, uh, COVID-19 and a change of season isn't a one-size-fit-all. And I'm thinking in terms of, you know, kids, for example, who have had that opportunity to be outside and they won't. Like, for example, my teens, I let them go for bike rides and skateboarding with their friends. Uh, they could be harder hit than the rest of us when you talk about the younger set. Absolutely, especially if they're less prepared to make the decision to go outside in a winter yeah. setting. It's not... You know, some countries and cities, frankly, have a outdoor recreation culture in the winter as well. You don't really see a big difference in how much time people are spending outside in winter and summer because they've adapted. There's a, there's lots of amenities and it's just the way they are. So that's why the idea of starting to think about this now, getting prepared that, okay, this is not staying inside for a few months. I'm going to figure out how to spend more time outside, open windows, do what I need to do to keep myself comfortable um, change the way that we normally react in the winter, which is, um, you know, for a lot of Canadian cities, hibernating inside. Hibernating inside. Well, you know, I think we're, we're pretty good at that as Canadians, but it will be a different winter for sure. So thank you so much for breaking it down for us, Laura. My pleasure. Have a great day.
That is Laura Rosella, an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health. And see, that's that's one of the reasons why I have talked about it, and uh, you know, I've been, you know, <laughs> called out on the text line. You, well, me and Sue, about uh, you know, plugging the use of masks. And yes, they're mandatory in our city, but I'm on board because I'm thinking the more that we can fl- do our parts. To flatten the curve ahead of winter, for example, that would be, I, I think, uh, very, very good for us. We had 85 new cases yesterday, uh, kind of a move in the right direction. I would hope that in the next couple of days we see cases decline even further because they were moving past that uh, 23rd of July to, to now uh, when it comes to, uh, or sorry, August 1st, till now over uh, 10 days since masks have been mandatory. So what we can do now would help make... Maybe winter a little bit easier uh, to swallow because uh, numbers down lower. Maybe we can, you know, still do those indoor things and, and not worry and get a better handle on what's happening. So to that point, in the next hour, we're going to have Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist, on taking your coronavirus questions, whatever you may have, whether it has to do with your family, with masks, or, you know, uh, what he thinks of uh, the vaccine chances uh, that we're seeing with over 150 teams across the globe uh, researching and trying their best to develop these vaccines. So you can always send your questions in via text at 403-974-8255. Coming up uh, in about uh, three minutes' time, we're going to check in with Global Social host Matthew Conrad. Now, you you know that the Oilers 50-50 Kind of a schmozzle when it came to the computer. They had some real issues, so I, I don't think they have the winner yet. I, I know that they had circled the date of Thursday because they had to refund a lot of people who were double and triple and sometimes quadruply charged for tickets that they bought for the lottery. And then we hear news yesterday that the Calgary Flames 50-50 has been postponed. So we'll see if that's a direct correlation to what has happened in Edmonton or if the Calgary Flames have any other uh, reasoning behind that, or when we could get our hands on some Calgary Flames game 50-50 tickets. And that will be again with Matthew Conrad coming up in a couple minutes' time. Right now, 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. Still looking like a pretty good drive out there this morning on your major routes. Northbound on Deerfoot, 15 minutes from Cranston and Seton up to 17th Avenue. Coming out of Airdrie on Highway 2, 15 minutes down to Memorial Drive. If you're leaving Cochrane, about a 20-minute drive on Highway 1A down to 16th Avenue. There is some ongoing construction on southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail. The left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. And over in the southwest, lots of pylons out in the road on Glenmore Trail between Sarcy and Crow child, causing drivers to slow down just a little bit. Popeye's Hot Honey Chicken is here. Two pieces of Popeye's chicken drizzled with spicy sweet hot honey sauce and served with a regular side and biscuit for just $6.99. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jansen. We're seeing a little bit of increased east and westbound volume on 16th Avenue by Center Street. We do have reports of a collision in that area, so watch for emergency crews arriving on scene. Northbound Deerfoot seeing a bit of building volume between Douglasdale Boulevard and Southland Drive. That will add a couple extra minutes to your commute. Southbound Deerfoot still moving along pretty nicely. About a 15-minute drive from Yankee Valley Boulevard in Airdrie down to Memorial Drive. And coming out of Cochrane, Highway 1A, about a 20-minute drive down to 16th Avenue. Tonight's Lotto 649 draw is an estimated $14 million plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $14 million to get that Lotto 649 feeling. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. Eight eleven, and 
Yes, vaccine trials underway. Masks are now mandatory. With the ever-changing world during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought it was time to bring back Associate Professor from the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney, to ask some questions and touch on some important changes. Thanks for joining us, and good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. I want to get your thoughts on, on some of the big news that came down earlier this week from Russia and uh, Vladimir Putin himself, who said that there is a workable, a usable vaccine. And in fact, he has used said vaccine on his daughter. Your thoughts to hear that uh, months and months after we first heard the term COVID-19, that Russia has a vaccine. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm entirely surprised. I definitely have a lot of questions and, and a number of concerns with this vaccine. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't work. We, we, we honestly don't know. that There's not enough information to know whether this is going to work or not going to work and if it's safe. So I think we'll have to learn, unfortunately, as they go forward. Um, I want to be clear that this kind of research would never be approved by Health Canada. We will not have access to this vaccine here, at least for the foreseeable future. If additional studies are done, maybe, but uh, this is not the way we approve vaccines in Canada. We demand uh, pretty comprehensive safety and efficacy data long before we would ever see this uh, administered to Canadian patients. So it is a disturbing trend, but unfortunately not entirely surprising given the urgency of covid Okay, that is the Russian vaccine. So I'm yeah. wondering, are there other countries on the globe that if they were to say we, we have a workable vaccine that we would uh, take a closer look at it? I guess I, I would uh, be asking the question, any more other countries that we're on par when it comes to the regulations surrounding a vaccine that we're uh, more comfortable with? I think we're closer on par with both the European uh, agency as well as even the FDA in the U.S. Although we're close to them, that does not mean we rubber stamp. So uh, vaccines or, or other products approved by the FDA in the, in the U.S. do not instantly become available in Canada. And Health Canada actually demands even more safety data than what the FDA does. So uh, I, I think it is encouraging that, that we're, we're very much aligned with these countries, which should provide a fairly rapid uh, uh, translation of, for example, a European-approved vaccine into Canada. But we are also still demanding our own safety data, and we will be making our own decisions independently. So I, I do find that very reassuring that, that we are not simply believing somebody else's story who may have a, a monetary investment in a vaccine company, but we demand our own data set to be presented to Health Canada, and then we make our own decision based on that. Okay, here's a question for you that, uh, you know, we, we, we got early, and, and, and this is a, a question to do with lifestyle and a hobby, but nevertheless a legitimate question. Ask the doctor when and how we can safely sing in choirs again. Yeah, that is a, that is a tough question. Um, so I, I think in most places we are seeing the numbers drop down low enough that these activities can be fairly safe, although we are still asking people to, to be cautious of them. So we have seen viral spread in choirs, um, but this is probably a lot less due to airborne transmission and more to everybody is physically close together in a choir and often still sharing, you know, same staircase, same doorknob, same. So it, it's no different than many other activities where we simply put a lot of people into an indoor space the virus will spread. So uh, unfortunately, probably not quite there yet, but the numbers are definitely headed in the right direction to start opening these things back up. We talked about the winter coming and how we might have to take extra precautions because we'll be spending more time indoors. So I think this question came from, from that uh, interview earlier. Can the COVID-19 virus survive in minus 20 degrees Celsius on door handles, etc.? 
Yeah, unfortunately it can. Um, we don't have exact data on how long that extends its lifespan, but it, unfortunately it can. I mean, we store viruses in the lab frozen, normally much colder, you know, below minus 80 kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we do know that, the, yeah, unfortunately freezing doesn't kill the virus. So it will still potentially be on those surfaces even in, in winter. And in some cases they live even longer on surfaces because we actually have less sunlight and less UV light in the winter to inactivate the virus. Okay, here's another one. Good morning, Andrew. Can you please ask the doctor if a really typo blood is more resistant to COVID-19? That's what I've heard. Yeah, there's been a lot of studies about this, and unfortunately none of them have made it to the peer review level, which means people have made an observation, they, they've, they've written a paper about it, and it's not yet past independent review that the study was done properly. A lot of these are simply you notice a group of patients that did well, and you check them, and they happen to be type O blood, and then you had a group of, for example, you may have also had a group of patients who didn't do well, and you didn't check them, and they were also type O. So we really don't know. To, to my knowledge, there has not been... A, a properly controlled study to say that any one blood type is either protected or more susceptible than the other. Here's a technical question for you. Well, what does the COVID test indicate the presence of? Antibodies? Uh, it, it depends on which test we're talking about. If you're doing the nasal swab or, or the, the throat swab, it's actually looking for the virus. It's looking for the genetic material of the virus. So that tells you you are currently infected. If we're talking about the blood test, that is looking for antibodies, which is more a measure of did your immune system ever respond to COVID? So were you infected in the past? So there, there are a number of different tests out there. They're looking for different things, but typically the swabs are looking for the virus. The blood is looking for the antibodies. Okay, I'm wondering, uh, you have two more minutes to, to stay with uh, us? Of course, yes. Oh, good stuff. More with infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney in two minutes' time. Right now, helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city. There's some ongoing bridge work on McLeod Trail just north of Heritage Drive. There are lanes closed in both directions. I am seeing some minor delays of a couple of minutes. Over in the southwest on Glenmore Trail between Crowchild and Sarcy, lots of pylons out in the road. I am seeing some minor east and westbound delays that could add a couple extra minutes to your commute. Southbound on Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail, the left lane is closed. That is a repeating closure 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day this week until Friday. At the moment, traffic is is flowing fairly smoothly through the area and we do have reports of a collision on 16th Avenue by Center Street. I can't get my eyes on it but I am seeing some minor delays. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SO and mobile stations. Visit pcoptimum.ca for details. For the 770CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. Eight nineteen on the morning news and is still with Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Dr. Janney, got some more questions locked and loaded for you here. Um, starting with this one here, I've, I've seen more and more videos online of people with hair loss due to COVID-19. Is this something new that we've learned about uh, coronavirus? Yeah, I too saw those videos. I'm not sure. It's not one of the symptoms we've been told to look for. So I think this, you know, whether it's a coincidence or emerging evidence, I'm really not sure. But something we will have to keep our eyes on as we move forward. There's one surrounding masks. Morning. Can you ask the doctor if there's any point in wearing a reusable mask with no filter? 
Uh, absolutely, yes. So we've actually seen a number of uh, filters in, in uh, various masks uh, end up being an infection risk, depending on the quality of the filter. So the recommendation, even for a simple mask, is not to, to have a filter. But multi-layered mask, and if you do have a filter, making sure it's uh, one of these bonded uh, layers is quite protective. But even a simple two- or three-layer fabric mask is very effective in COVID. Here's a question, and you'll know the numbers and uh, know if this is true or not. Why haven't we seen an improvement in our daily numbers in the city of Calgary now that masks are mandatory? So it's a great question, and this is uh, one of the difficulties with interpreting data. So what we have seen in the city of Calgary, and I would call this an improvement, is that we have plateaued the curve. So when we reopened things, we did see a steady increase, and we were up to 160 cases a day, and that has now plateaued around 100 cases a day. So what we've done is we've stopped the growth of the virus. It may not have reduced it back down to zero, but we are no longer seeing that exponential growth and the steady uptick of virus, which is extremely good news. Okay. Here's one that sounds fairly urgent too, Doctor. As the deadline looms for choosing at home versus traditional learning, as a parent, I need to clearly know the answer to the following. When my child is sent home because they may have been exposed to COVID at school, is the expectation that the other members of our family uh, should also be quarantined if that happens? No. So they, they will not be requested to be to be quarantined, but we can, for example, do our best to treat this as a self-isolation. And what I mean by that is you're still allowed to go out and do essential services. You're still allowed to go out and go to work. But keep in mind that if you are exposed at home, this is where things such as wearing a mask in public become absolutely critical because you could be that vector who is spreading the virus further. So a, a child sent home from school, absolutely not quarantined. The parents are still expected to be able to go out and do groceries, still expected to be able to go to work. But we just want to people to consider that as there may have been an exposure risk and treat it as such. Okay, here's another one. Uh, should I be worried about going to the dentist at this point? So I would say no. Of, of all of the service industries out there, I think the dental practices have actually moved the most to build in personal protections. Uh, they're very tightly regulated, and I know a number of dental practices uh, in the last month have had uh, random provincial in inspections, not because there's been complaints, but just to make sure they're complying with all these enhanced rules. And the, the good news is that there have been a lot of new rules brought in, and these are very safe practices at the moment. As always, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Janney. Oh, you're more than welcome. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 6.09 on the morning news. In North America, the tipping culture has always been a source of pride, giving customers the last word when human interaction is involved. But defining what good service looks like is purely subjective. Most importantly, some in the food in industry see tipping as a lever for discrimination against certain employees. With more on the topic, we're joined by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, is a Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor in Food Distribution Policy at Dalhousie University. Good morning to you, Dr. Charlebois. Good morning. So what could be a negative of tipping or at the very least, why would you, would you, would you excuse me, why should we be <laughs> opening, easy for me to say, right, opening the discussion surrounding tipping, you know, because it's been age old. So what is a dark side of, of, of the practice? Well, our, our tipping culture in uh, North America is pretty strong. I mean, a lot of people enjoy um, having the power to assess 
the quality of the service you you get when you go to a restaurant. Uh, and uh, well, I, I'm one of them, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's always nice to either reward or punish someone for good or bad service. Um, but with with a lot of discussion around equity, uh, justice, uh, and of course. Uh, uh, some issues related to the Me Too movement, for example, it, it got a lot of people uh, thinking about uh, the value of, of tipping. Four years ago, we actually ran a survey uh, across the country, and 40% of Canadians actually uh, uh, supported the concept of, of no tipping. So you would include the tip in into the price uh, on the menu. Uh, like you would see, for example, in Europe or Asia. Uh, now we just ran a new survey four years later, and we're up to 56%. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, well, a lot of uh, a lot of these people earn uh, a minimum wage. Uh, they don't earn a whole lot, and with COVID, on top of that, uh, these people are exposed to to more risks. And so there, I think there's this recognition that perhaps. It's important for for everyone to earn a decent living, and we saw that in the grocery uh, business, and now we're seeing also in the food service business. So, in an article, though, I want to dig deeper into you know some of the darker uh, aspects as well. I want to get back to embedding the tip in a second and how that would look. Uh, but on TroyMedia.com, you talk about the darker side and, and how we could be discriminating against certain employees with tipping. If you can break that down for us, that's something I've never thought of. Yeah, well, I mean, what what is good service? Uh, I mean, it, uh, I can. Uh, what what is good service to me mm-hmm. may be very bad service for you, and and how you evaluate that is often based on very subjective criteria, uh, and sometimes. Uh, well, actually, most of the time we have biases towards people, and you may actually decide to penalize a server. Uh, just because of his or her race, for example, or even gender. Uh, even further, I mean, I've never worked in the food service industry personally, mm-hmm. but in the last 20 years I've done a lot of research in the sector and observed a lot of things front and back of the house. And let me tell you, <laughs> I have three daughters. I'm not sure I would want any of them to work in the food service industry based on some of the things I've actually witnessed. Patrons drinking a little bit too much, saying really unacceptable things, behaving uh, in un- unacceptable ways, and uh, and waiters, servers are willing to just take it uh, just because they want a good tip. So there's the the tipping concept gives a lot of power to the consumer, and some of them actually are abusing of that power, unfortunately. Okay, so but if we embed the tips. Well, like is done in other parts of the world, does that not um, kind of, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe breed mediocre service from our servers in the sense that, hey, I'm, I don't have to put that extra shine on because I might be making an extra two or three dollars an hour. Absolutely. Of course. Unless, of course, the establishment is well managed. So okay. you see, tipping actually allows management to be off the hook, essentially. I mean, the worst thing you can do to a restaurant operator is not to show up again. 
is to go there. Mm. If you do, if you get back service, you don't go back. Good management will actually monitor these things beyond tipping. Uh, tipping actually will just leave management off the hook and will just continue on. And at some point, of course, you'll just let someone go if the service is just poor. But over time, if you actually democratize the concept of tipping and everyone has access to tipping, front and back of the house, by the way, because mm-hmm. recruitment has been very difficult for kitchens as well, uh, you end up you end up forcing management to look into performance and evaluating people properly beyond looks, beyond gender, beyond everything else. Okay, so when you say uh, embedded uh, tipping, would would we like, for example, take a, take a wage of fifteen dollars an hour and tack on a fifteen percent, or uh, would it look like, or would it be more successful if you just put a fifteen percent gratuity on everything? So Richmond Station, a, a Toronto-based restaurant, just did that last week. They uh, it added eighteen percent on all menu prices. Okay. Okay. So because they wanted, so the the owner said it, it, he wanted to do the right thing, quote unquote. But the problem with that is that it makes actually his operation less competitive. Oh. <laughs> so you, so you can quickly understand that. It's not just one establishment. The other problem that we have is that if, let's say, some establishment will include gratuity uh, and others don't, it creates a very confusing marketplace for the consumer because you mm. wouldn't know whether or not the tip is point. included or not, which is why industry itself may want to take the lead on this, uh, starting with Restaurants Canada, for example, and, and start having a conversation about, about tipping. Uh, mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't want government to get involved in this, but I think the industry itself uh, and, and great companies like Cara, Cara actually operates almost 2,000 restaurants in this country, uh, should have a say on this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your say. We've got 30 seconds left, but... You, you mentioned that the Richmond uh, restaurant particularly had 18%. What is, if I go to a restaurant, this is just maybe your personal opinion or maybe you have research on it. If I have good service, not the most outstanding, but I'm happy with it, what is a, a, a minimum tip these days in 2020? Is it 15% or is it higher at 18%? It's, it's very subjective. Uh, basically, the 18% is the average. Ooh. But depending on where you are in the country, sometimes 10% is a very generous tip, depending of where you are. So, again, there's, there's no standards. And, uh, of course, uh, if you've been in the business, you'll know that Americans would typically tip at least 20%. Wow. But Canadians don't tip as much on average. But some do. So it really depends. It's, that's why the, the allowing consumers to tip is really uh, giving total strangers power uh, on on how people are people who are working very hard how they're compensated. It's a very interesting angle, and I yeah. never thought of it like that. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. No problem. Take care. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. 617, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle.
Your major routes moving along pretty nicely this morning. Northbound on McLeod Trail, about a 20-minute drive from Stony up to 17th Avenue downtown. Northbound Deerfoot, 15 to 20 minutes from Cranston and Seton up to 17th Avenue. Coming out of Airdrie on Highway 2, 15 minutes down to Memorial Drive. And coming out of Cochrane, Highway 1A, 20 minutes down to 16th Avenue. But be aware, southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail. The left lane is closed till 5 o'clock this evening for work in the area. Tonight's Lotto 649 draw is an estimated $14 million, plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $14 million. Get that Lotto 649 feeling. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Phil Jansen. Quite the fitting song for this next segment, 909 on the morning news. A steady stream of remote meetings or online classes can become exhausting as the pandemic wears on. Our next guest offers up some practical ways to cope with digital overload. We're joined by Ian Galatly, a professor of organizational behavior with the University of Alberta School of, of Business. Good morning to you, Ian. Uh, good morning. This has been months, and we, we, uh, we looked at this and talked about it earlier on the program. We're closer to six months Basically half so. half of 2020, I know. our world has been turned upside down. So chances are, uh, you know, you've had your fair share no matter what you do um, uh, being online. So this digital overload, it's a thing. How, how do we tell if, if we've uh, been overloaded with digital and it's affecting us? Well, it's, uh, it's, a, real, it's a real dilemma because on the one hand, video conferencing uh, tools have really, you know, stepped in and really saved us in many ways. Uh, helping to connect all of us um, during the uh, these past months, but on the other hand, it's it's one of these uh, processes, and your listeners, I'm sure, can relate to this. That you know, after a while, um, you just you're just so physically and emotionally drained. Uh, some people talked about feeling zoomed out, brain dead. It's just um, uh, it, it seems to be just uh, um, very typical these days very typical and so you want to maybe cope and get past it and you know try to have some uh, feeling of normalcy in this digital world so you have uh, broken it down to a handful of ways to cope let's start with uh, taking a break from the screen yeah there's um i mean there's 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 a couple of reasons really why why we we sort of get to this place i think it's it's just um, it's not just what is said, it's, it's really how things are communicated and, and certainly students in classrooms or uh, if you're part of a team trying to do work, um, you have to work a lot harder actually if all of the information that you're getting is coming through these screens. And you know, as humans, we're just not naturally, we're very good at processing information, just not through such a restricted medium. Um, and the other thing too, and before I get to the um, uh, uh recommendations is that video conferencing itself is is inherently stressful I mean, when, when you think about it we spend all of our time looking at a camera it's just not a very natural thing to do we we uh engaging in a constant gaze is very unnatural uh when we look when we sort of look around the room or uh, sometimes we're projecting to others that we're not uh, paying attention. And so when it comes to recommendations, um, to reduce some of this load that we're, we're dealing with, the work, uh, it's a good idea. People have suggested maybe to close down any other programs you might have. Maybe it's time to put your phone away. Mm -hmm. uh, your listeners probably will already have figured some of this out. 
building and brakes, for instance, um, you know, just shutting off the uh, the video, getting up, walking around, um, maybe scheduling shorter meetings. I know the back-to-back, you know, the, these things are typically scheduled in 30-minute, 60-minute intervals, but just by reducing the, the meeting to maybe 20, 25 minutes, uh, 50-55, you, you get that extra five minutes just to sort of move around a little bit. Um, reducing information. Uh, I'm finding on a lot of our calls what we're doing is initially we would everybody would have a visual, but I'm finding more and more now people are turning off their video, uh, just listening as opposed to trying to process visual and audio. Um, and I, I would leave you with the last point, and, and that's just try alternative methods. I, I'm finding now that, you know, just going back to the phone is, is often a very helpful thing to do. Uh, you can focus just on the audio. You can get around. You can walk around the room, for instance. And I think you do get a little bit more um, of that body language, emotional cues coming through. And, and it helps us understand not just what is said, but how things are said. And when you think about it, that's often very critical. One uh, point that really uh, stood out to me is the consideration of whether or not the matter at hand uh, needs an online meeting to begin with. Exactly. You know, I think initially we all jumped on this. We all wanted to. We saw this technology as sort of an interesting way. And, you know, it was, you know, any issue coming up, you know, we'd meet for this. And I'd also add, too, with email, we're finding that, you know, initially we have to copy everyone on emails. Well, you know, that inadvertently had the effect of loading up everyone's inboxes. And so what, I think what we're seeing now, and, you know, people are gradually getting this. We're just uh, meet when we have to. Uh, some issues can be dealt with email. And, you know, I think for some of the more sensitive kinds of uh, topics, uh, especially when there's some nuance, you know, pick up the phone. I think often it can really help. We did have an in-person meeting um, about a month ago. We had some difficult issue in the office. We brought in four people. We maintained social distance. And I have to tell you, in about an hour, we solved a major problem that probably would have taken all day on video conference. Um, I'm wondering if this overload and if the challenges are the same for, for online learning. We focus a lot on business, uh, but are, do they transfer? Are there uh, certain unique challenges with online? Well, I, I, I would imagine it would have to. I, I, I did teach a course in the spring, and, and um, you know, comparing a three-hour class online to a three-hour in-person, I can tell you that not only was I exhausted, I got the sense the students were as well. And so a lot of these suggestions, I think, really do need to be built into classroom, you know, taking frequent breaks, um, giving students opportunities to uh, interact with one another in smaller groups. And that would also include building in some socializing time. I think, you know, some of we do need to sort of capture some of the natural human kinds of interactions, um, you know, just just socializing in a very informal, casual way. So I do think a lot of the what we're seeing in the business world uh, certainly would transfer into uh, uh, school settings as well. I would guess that if, if your downtime normally during a non-pandemic time included, you know, turning on the home theater screen and watching TV or binge watching your favorite shows, you might want to find a, an alternate hobby during these times if you spent, you know, 90% of your time during the day on screens to begin with. Yes, and, you know, I think now that things are starting to open up a little bit, uh, we were sort of 
imprisoned into our mm-hmm. technology, uh, being online all day, and then, like you say, Netflix at night. But now that we're able to get out a little bit, um, you know, go for walks, I, I've heard anecdotally that bike sales, for instance, across the province are at an all-time high. You can barely, barely get anything. And so I think people are getting out. They're, they're, they're trying to change the nature of the activity. You know, it, it, it's really important to sort of, you can't just sit at a desk for, um, you know, six, eight, ten hours. I think it's important to get up and move around. It's, it's good for well-being, and I think it helps us cope with the demands of this new technology. So you, you think that post-pandemic, we've heard more and more people saying that they, they might not ever go back to the office. Do you see that uh, really increasing, or do you think it's just good to use it as a hybrid when it comes to these online meetings and uh, doing things remotely? Well, you know, we used to use a lot of video conferencing in our work, and um, we, we I, you know, again, I'm just speaking personally, um, I really saw that as a benefit. It was very convenient, and it helped bring people who are very geographically dispersed together. But now that it was sort of forced on us, I I really see that. Um, There is a lot of talk about, you know, moving as as people have had to move home, you know, people are starting to look at the efficiencies there. Um, On the other hand, is it, I mean, the big questions to be answered, I suppose, is this sustainable? Um, Is there some sort of a hybrid model that we need Mm -hmm. to look at? There is real advantage in bringing people together, especially to solve complex problems. I, I can't imagine a, a group of engineers, for instance, you know, always having to work, you know, uh, apart. Uh, sometimes you have to get together, you have to communicate, you have to um, roll up the sleeves and, and work out some of these issues. Um, I'm not sure we know the answer to the mm-hmm. question. I think we're going to feel this out as we go. Absolutely. Probably some sort of a a hybrid, a mix. I think some kinds of work can easily be, you know, people can work at home and then just connect when they need to. Mm -hmm. Other types of work, especially highly interdependent work, like teams and things, they actually do need to be together. Need to be together. Thank you so much. It's a timely and certainly an interesting topic. Thanks, Ian. Very very welcome. Thank you for having me. That is Ian Galatly, a professor of organizational behavior with the University of Alberta School of Business. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master plan community. We're getting reports of a problem westbound Glenmore Trail approaching Blackfoot. I haven't been able to get my eyes on it, but there are delays of up to five minutes extending back onto southbound Deerfoot. On eastbound Glenmore Trail, seeing some minor delays by 37th Street in the southwest, there is some construction through that area. We also have some construction northbound 14th Street at Heritage Drive. There is only a single left lane open there. Delays of up to 10 minutes start before 90th Avenue. And on McLeod Trail, just north of Heritage Drive, there is that ongoing bridge work with lanes closed in both directions expect minor delays a message from canadian blood services blood donors are needed to fill over 2200 appointments in calgary this month appointments are required book now at blood.ca for the 770 chqr traffic helicopter i'm phil jensen